The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hey, everyone. I'm Leah Smart, and welcome to In the Arena, a LinkedIn self-development podcast. Our show explores the vulnerable aspects of the human experience to inspire transformation. Hey, everyone. This week, I'm talking to Michelle Mi-Jung Kim. She is a queer immigrant Korean-American woman who's a writer, a speaker, an activist, an entrepreneur. I call her a warrior. She's the author of The Wake Up, Closing the Gap Between Good Intentions and Real Change. I'm going to tell you now, go out and buy this book. You can find it on Amazon and anywhere else that books are sold, but it is absolutely worth the read. And it's part of the reason I wanted to talk to her. Michelle has been a lifelong social justice activist. She served on a variety of boards and organizations, and her work has appeared on world-renowned platforms like HBR, Forbes, The New York Times. She's been named Medium's top writer in diversity for three years in a row. Michelle is really doing this work. And her book moves us through four stages or phases that can help us both clarify and apply what we're learning. She helps ground us in moving beyond our surface level good intentions. She helps orient us to establish a shared understanding about the issues we're trying to solve. She helps us understand how we can show up. So learning how to approach certain situations with a little more clarity so we can work through some of the challenges together. And finally, she ends on just moving us forward together, right? So how do we own our space, care for other people, prioritize our humanity, and put healing over hate? My big takeaways from this conversation, this is human work. This is beyond diverse hiring practices. It's beyond unconscious bias training. There's nothing wrong with either of those things, but it's really about how we become better humans. The second thing is that waking up is hard and staying awake can really rock you. It can fatigue you. Michelle says the way to stay awake is to look at your why and ask yourself, is your why unsustainable or is it enduring? Michelle aligns that sustainable why to a famous Audre Lorde quote, that our liberation is bound together. Even when we are beneficiaries of systems of power or access or education, we actually still lose. And Michelle talks about how that happens. And finally, when we define ourselves in the binary, I am a good person or a bad person, we are less able to become the people we want to be. You are not a good person or a bad person. You are a human being with a desire to think, say, and do things that you believe are good in this world. You are going to do things that you might believe are not good, and that's okay. Your goodness is not about always being good. It's defined in the moments that you choose to show up and be called in to your mistakes, to your imperfections, and to your shortcomings. Those are the moments that refine you as a human being. Our conversation was wow, and Michelle truly does this work from a place of authenticity and fearlessness. She is not afraid to call out what a lot of us dance around, and you're going to hear that in this episode. The way she puts it is, she won't promise comfort in this work. So get comfy with the uncomfy, get out and buy Michelle's book, follow her on LinkedIn, 
Michelle Mijun Kim. Her book is The Wake Up, and enjoy the episode. What is your vision for how you want to do this work? Oh, that's a big question. (laughs) I think, you know, the way that I envisioned doing this work four or five years ago, when I was leaving the tech industry without a plan for what I'm going to do next, and that, you know, the catalyst of me leaving the industry having been so traumatic, I think I was leading first and foremost, from a place of anger. I was really angry about what I had experienced in the workplace, in corporate America and in tech as a queer Asian woman employee, and the way that I saw how people and companies were using, you know, quote unquote, diversity and inclusion to do the performative work of what I feel should be an extension of social justice work. And what I feel so deeply is about human lives. And I was really angry about what I experienced, what I witnessed, and I wanted to do this work from a place of accountability. So I think that's always been part of the vision for my work. And by accountability, I'm really thinking about how do I do this work from a place of always centering and prioritizing the needs of the most marginalized people in the world. Mm-hmm. So when we are, whether doing education work, equity consulting work, how do we always come back to that principle of centering the most marginalized? And because so much of what I witnessed in the workplace was always putting the burden on the most marginalized people to explain, to process, to hold space, to educate at the expense of their own trauma, and this work being led by and for white people. And I think that causes so much more damage than good when even when people have the best of intentions to do this work, when people lead by prioritizing the comfort of the most privileged, not the needs of the most marginalized, we end up getting into the cycle of doing performative stuff over and over again. So my vision was how do we do this work in a truly liberatory way without causing more harm and the only way that we could do that is by always centering the most marginalized people. And I think the part of that vision is really questioning not only the the outcome, the what we need to do, but how we do it. And I think that is what's so often missing in corporate diversity and inclusion initiatives or the programmings is people are always searching for the what, right? Like, what do we do? Tell me what to do. Tell me what to say, what not to say. And people rush there without first asking, why are we doing this? Why do we need this in the first place? And how do we do this so that we don't cause harm along the way? And even when we are saying that we want to prioritize the most marginalized people, if we're not constantly questioning that, I think the vision ends up being performative. So that's some of the things that I I think about when I think about the vision um, of how I want to do this work and how I want to prioritize not only the what, but the why and the how to. And you you start your book off with 
these two different whys, the unsustainable why, which points to some of the more performative, and and I actually want to clarify, unintentionally performative in some ways, right? Our culture can be performative. And so we just get on board with that. But you talk about the unsustainable why, and then you open up to this enduring why, which is that our liberation is bound together. I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about this and if we go a layer deeper, what gets people from that unsustainable why to that enduring why of liberating yeah. all of us? Yes. So, you know, the unsustainable why to me is when people do this work from a place of wanting to help other people, right? I want to I want to help people who are marginalized. I want to make sure that other people have the opportunities that I had growing up. And it's coming from a good place. And I, I think it's way better to have that sort of morality-based why than to have the business case why that we are also used to, right? The All the profitability metrics, all the, you know, if we have more diverse teams and we are going to be more profitable, they win. more innovative. Yeah, <laughs> diverse right? teams win. <laughs> exactly. And, and I say we can't expect social justice outcomes with a why rooted in capitalism. Right. So that's just a why that I think has outgrown its usefulness because it's so easy for us to fall into the trap of the business case why and give up on the effort altogether when we don't see short term gains financially or otherwise. Because there's actually a lot of things that leaders will need to commit to giving up, whether it's power, money, resources, time, speed, that if they actually want to commit to equitable workplaces, they are going to find themselves constantly grappling with the tension of the business case. You know, when when are we actually going to reap the benefits of having diverse teams, according to, you know, looking at the McKinsey reports and looking at the BCG reports, right? And then the unsustainable why more so is I think the it's the right thing to do because other people are suffering and we want to help. And I think though it comes from a place of real good intention, I think sometimes it can end up with people being more of a saviorist and savior and having that savior mindset and being the martyr, right? That I am a good person. I am trying to do good for other people. And what that misses is the reality that we're actually all part of the system too. That when we don't do anything, we are either complicit in upholding the status quo, or we are benefiting from it, or that we are marginalized by it. And for all of us, it's probably a combination of all three of them. And when we say we're just doing this out of our goodness of our hearts, we end up inadvertently separating our responsibility from what is happening to people all across the world and that we end up distancing ourselves from the problems that other people are experiencing, right? Rather than seeing ourselves as part of the problem and part of the agents that need to be responsible for making change happen. And I think the, the short-sighted understanding of, you know, this is other people's problems that I'm trying to solve and help is that so often people think that white supremacy only hurts people of color. But white supremacy hurts white people, too. And that's, I think, what's so important for people to understand, right? Can we double click on that? Like, what is... Yes. Oh, God, I said double click. Can we <laughs> Can we just talk a little more about that? Because, first of all, can you... Because you've brought it up now, like, can you define white supremacy so that we can start to unravel all yes. the stuff we have around it? Yes. Thank you for that question. So many people think when 
people hear the term white supremacy, that we're talking about the KKK, the Nazis, the white people in, you know, white hoods. And when I talk about white supremacy and when so many, you know, scholars and activists talk about white supremacy, it's often so much more than the most extreme examples of white supremacy. And I think that's where we need to start to redefine what white supremacy is in so many people's brains and hearts and minds, because I know the allergic reaction people have to that word because they don't want to be associated with it, right? They don't want to be seen as the KKK or the Nazis. Oh, of course, of course I'm not that racist. But when we talk about white supremacy, it's a set of systems, beliefs, and cultural artifacts that really simply defined by the dictionary prioritizes and puts more value, puts superiority to the concept of whiteness and therefore justifies their dominance. So anything that is defined as being closer to more proximate to whiteness is considered superior and therefore white people should have dominance over people of color. And it's quite simple, right? Even when we think about how we talk about names and how there are so many now, so many research studies that have been replicated to prove that white sounding names are more likely to be invited back for interviews on resume versus ethnic sounding names. And they've replicated this over Asian names, you know, black sounding names, Asian sounding names, Muslim sounding names. And the data is so clear that there is this preference for whiteness and Eurocentricity. And uh, there are so many different unconscious biases that we can talk about that, you know, show that whiteness is preferred over all other races and that we consistently see over all industries and all systems that white people hold the majority of institutional power to create change that impact everybody's lives. So when I talk about white supremacy, yes, we there are extreme examples that we can talk about, but I want to be focused on the more insidious, more subtle ways that we all perpetuate white supremacy culture and how even people of color, even me, because we grew up with it, because white supremacy is the water that we're all swimming in, it's the air that we're breathing, that unless we are consciously disrupting that, we are going to be complicit in perpetuating white supremacy culture. So I think it's important for us to get back to the very simple, basic definitions all the time, right? So white supremacy is the superiority of whiteness over all other races, and two, therefore, that white people should have dominance over people of color. And it's it's a myth that has been, you know, consistently repeated over over the years by so many ways that we exist and how society has been designed. When you talk about uh, context in your book, the ABCs of context, and the meaning I found in this was also just recognizing, you know, when you use a term like racism or white supremacy, oftentimes what you come up against if you're talking to someone who is in the majority or is white is defensiveness, right? For the very point you just shared, which is, I don't, I'm not part of that group. That's not right. me. And so don't lump me in with that. At the same time, the context is that you know, we've been on this planet for tens of thousands of years. Life has been on this planet for much longer. This is not a new concept in the history, human history, right? So so I, I'm also just, when I think about the context, the reason I bring that up is that this is part of human nature. 
it doesn't excuse it, but it can remove some of the fear and defensiveness because we are now at a point where we are emotionally, psychologically, and probably more spiritually equipped to recognize that it doesn't work. Yes. And I think what people hold on to is wanting to be seen as good people. And I think there is such innate desire for us to be accepted by other human beings and to belong, right? And I think what what you're talking about in terms of human nature, in terms of the way that our brains are wired, the way that we receive information, the way we've been socialized by being exposed to all of these different data points and information we've been taught and we have consumed indirectly, plus our innate desire to be accepted and to belong and to be seen as useful, good people in our society, I think is so, so, so strong. Depending on, you know, whatever community that you belong to, I think that force of wanting to be a part of a social group and be accepted is incredibly strong in any culture. And, you know, we can see how people adapt to their surroundings. And I think part of the you know, desire for people to want to do good and be a part of this movement and why people so often rush to doing the what and to be good allies, right? Quote unquote allies is because people want to be seen as good people. And that's, I think, human nature because so much of our survival depends on how other people perceive us and our, you know, innate social beings. And I think in the book, what I say is that when we can let go of being unilaterally or absolutely defined as being a good person, when we can let that identity go and rather just exist as human beings, doing good and sometimes bad on accident or by mistake, but we're giving ourselves that grace to be able to learn from it, then I think we open up so many more possibilities for us to be able to transform. And I love that in the book, you use the term that good is transient, right? And so, you know, you'll hear out in the world that from a DEI perspective, allyship is a verb, right? And any right. one point, you can be showing up in one way, but in another, you can be showing up completely differently. And even you share stories, you know, being the social justice warrior that you are, of times when you have not been, you know, on point or someone who could have looked at you and judged you and said, oh, you didn't do the right thing based on what you say your values are. So I love that you create this vulnerability in our humanity and our fallibility. So we don't have to live into this. If I'm good, I always have to be this way. Instead, we can live into here is my guiding principle or my North Star. I'm going to mess up but I'm also gonna come back to it. And that kind of brings me back to this enduring why. What is that and how do people cultivate it for themselves? Yes, so the most enduring why, uh, as you read it from the book, is the one that includes ourselves in it. And I believe that that is the journey that we all need to go on. And that's the why that we constantly need to come back to. And uh, the why, that is going to be the most sustainable for all of us is the one that is rooted in the foundational understanding that we are part of the system as well. That this is not some extracurricular charity work that we're trying to do, but that when we are fighting against racism, we are fighting against racism because we know in the end, all of us and all of our well-being is bound together under the system of white supremacy. So when I say, you know, white supremacy hurts white people too, I mean that white supremacy also robs white people of their humanity as well. And white supremacy also demands 
from them, from white people, the impossible standard of perfection of whiteness. And it breathes this insatiable desire for power and control and resources, and it robs people of their opportunity to be human. And I think that those are the things that I want people to understand. And it's not just about racism, too. It's, it's all about all the other systems of oppression, right? That patriarchy is also hurting men. It's not just hurting women. It's hurting men, too. And the sooner we realize all of these connections on how these systems of oppressions work with each other, but also impacts everybody inside the system, I think then we can start to realize, I'm not just doing this for other people, I'm doing this for me. I'm doing this for me and people that I love. And therefore, this is not something that I can opt out of because we can't afford to. And I think that's the most enduring one because otherwise, when we think of this work as extracurricular charity work for other people, then it's so easy for us to tap out of it. It's so easy for us to be able to say, oh, well, I have a lot going on today, so I'm just not going to engage, right? Or I have too much to lose, so I'm just not going to be able to do this one. And I think that we see that time after time when, we, when it comes to people with good intentions who were quick to proclaim their values around equity and justice end up not being able to actually fulfill their promises to themselves because they realize there is a cost associated with them being you know, anti-racist or being feminist and what have you. And in order for us to actually you know, show up as the people and live our lives as the people that we say we want to be, then we're going to have to reckon with our why that has to do with how we need to wake up to our own complicity and our own power in the system to create change. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were FinTech developers. We'd been a FinTech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a FinTech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. What do you say to people, you know, Michelle, who are sitting here going, well, how, how is it possible that ableism actually affects me if I'm able-bodied? How is it possible that patriarchy actually affects me if I'm a man or that white supremacy affects me if I'm white? How is that possible that it hurts me? Mm-hmm. 
There, I mean, so there are so many examples that we can we can go into for each of those. But I think that there are ways that these systems interplay with each other. So, you know, when we talk about white supremacy and patriarchy robbing humanity of men and cis men and uh, white people too, like an example that I can use for the patriarchy one is when we have the gender binary and the expectation around gender roles. Yes, it impacts women and uh, marginalized genders, but it also puts this undue expectation on men too. So the the inability for men to be vulnerable, the inability for men to be able to fully embrace their sexuality and their genders without the repercussions of being seen as less than, all of that stems from patriarchy and its standards as well. And I think the more that we can get into these specific examples of how people with power and people with privileged identities are also harmed by the same systems that they are benefiting from, I think that understanding will help us propel the movement forward. And of course, I think there's nuance to this because it's not that they're impacted on the same level, right? Or to the same degree, of course not, because there are people who are literally dying or in the process of dying or are dead because of these systems of oppression. So I don't want to make any false equivalencies here, but there are also ways in which people of power and privilege inside these systems that benefit are also harmed by it and eventually are not living up to the standards that they have set forth with the systems of oppression. You know, as you're talking, all I can see is like being locked in a box. <laughs> like every everything, each thing locks you further into a box. And, you know, I'm obviously not a white man, but my privilege is in, you know, my education and the work that I get to do, you know, in, in other areas. And I know for myself, the more I define myself by those things, the more boxed in I become and the less of me I can be. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, everything is designed to support certain types of identities, whether that is abilities or your gender or your race. And it's easy for us to, because we're all human, to deviate from those standards of supremacy. Right. When it comes to disability, there are so many ways in which that our systems are designed to marginalize and exclude people of different abilities and people who are disabled. And I think we see how that system was not sustainable to begin with during this pandemic. We see that the system wasn't designed in order to create access to different services and different cares and to be able to create a sustainable model where all of us can benefit from it. And I think there are so many different ways that these different systems of oppression show up in ways that we sometimes forget that it's impacting everybody you know, in society, not just marginalized people. So, you know, the more that people can do that interrogation work to reflect on how these systems impact themselves, I think the the sooner they'll realize that it's they're not going to be completely unharmed by the systems. As we're starting to investigate our whys, and I, I think this is probably the most important part of your book and this work is where it comes from. If it comes from a place of what we need to do, it's very different than coming from a place of why it must be done. And I think you said why we can't afford to wait. 
in that process, we're still going to be human and fallible. And you talk about in your book, the cost, right? And the idea of what am I willing to give up or not give up? What I loved about the way you framed this is you remove the need to be perfect in thinking about and understanding, analyzing for each of us what we're willing and not willing to give up. But you also ask us to remove the veneer then and the virtue signaling that we do and then step into the authentic story of what we're willing to give up and not give up. And you use an example of the CEO of Coinbase and you know how he shared basically that his company was about a mission and that the idea was building this narrow mission. And that did not allow for some of the work that we're talking about today to take place. And while it may not be the most admirable thing in some of our minds, what you said was, it's a relief, right? A relief to see someone be honest and then know what to expect. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about how we start to get more real with ourselves about what we're willing to give up and not give up? Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. So, so that example, the CEO of Coinbase and the the memo that he sent out to his employees and then to the public about how his company is not going to go down the road of talking about, you know, quote unquote, politics in the workplace or engaging in social justice activism to the extent that his employees and the consumers were demanding. And uh, I think that there were many reactions from people, right? The reaction of, oh, this is this is so awful. How could he do this? And you know, the desire for people to want to see a different response. And then there was also relief from some people, because for me, what I've been saying to people is I would rather see CEOs be honest about their lack of care or willingness to do this work for real than for them to say that they care and not deliver on their actions. Because at least the honest path gives us an option to disengage with that company or a path for us to interact differently with the company or the the leaders. On the other hand, when I see leaders so quick to release a performative statement that commits themselves to the work of DEI, but ends up falling short, what ends up happening in the background is there are so many people who are holding onto that promise and spending their days trying to make change happen and constantly running into this invisible wall that you know thwarts the entire efforts uh, in the end. People end up being hurt and there's harm that's caused with that dishonesty, with that veneer of performative commitment. And I think that ends up causing not only inaction, but a lot of emotional harm in the process on the most marginalized people. And it also breeds cynicism and disappointment, which are really difficult to recover from and to rebuild trust from. And I think that is also where so many people are at when we see companies and leaders who may have very genuine good intentions to do the right thing now, but I think there is such a gap in trust between them and what their employees are thinking and have felt for so long, right? And that cynicism that is so toxic and so valid for people to have because after years of watching these performative actions and 
inactions that follow and the broken promises, I think that ends up causing also different types of harm that people are not accounting for when they are too quick to announce that they are committed to something that they haven't really reckoned with or grappled with to understand what it entails in terms of the kind of sacrifices and the costs that they need to be thinking about. What I hope isn't going to happen, but what I can imagine already is happening and will continue to, which is, you know, we've had over a year of time since George Floyd's murder, since we started seeing many tech companies and companies all over the world that weren't in tech saying, you know, we're going to stand in solidarity and we will, you know, increase and pump up our DNI efforts. I imagine that there will start to be a feeling or a flavor of, are you actually, you know, doing what you said you were going to do. And what that takes me to, and something I am so curious about your perspective on, is the idea of making mistakes, and more importantly, the idea of redemption. And I know you talk about, you know, cancel culture and some of the ways in which some of us can be better at showing up ready to be called out for our mistakes. But can you talk a little bit about the experience of mistake making in these high stakes and how the rest of us can start to, well, or maybe do we need to normalize redemption for people? Oh, yes. So I think there's a couple different things that we need to talk about when it comes to mistakes and redemption and distinguishing and really growing our capacity to discern using different context, what level of accountability we are wanting from different situations. I think so often we go to the extreme examples to relate that to our fears that we hold and to justify the fears that we hold. By that I mean, when we talk about accountability, the prime example that people give is cancel culture, right? And how that's become so weaponized to talk about how we are now become, we have now become oversensitive and there's no room for mistakes and there's no room for redemption. And I want to challenge that fear that people have that are valid because when I talk to people, they cite examples that they see online, right? Of people who are being canceled and seeing deplatformed. And what I remind people is, you know, There is context behind that. When people say cancel culture, what I think people mean is the public forms of boycott against people and institutions that have been causing harm for so many years without any accountability or without any desire for accountability. And it's the years of lack of accountability that is leading to the last resort of mobilizing online, mobilizing publicly to hold people in positions of power to account in order to create safety for those who are being harmed in the immediate future and in the present. So I think that is one, you know, the most extreme examples of how we hold people in power to account when there has been abuse that's been continued over the years. And that is not the same thing as me telling someone that they've been using an outdated term that's causing harm, or me calling in my mom for saying something that might be problematic. That's a very different level of harm than sort of the institutionalized forms of abuse that are being enacted by individuals with power. 
So let's discern, right? Let's use discernment to see what situation we're in and what appropriate interventions are needed for different situations. And let's not lump everything into one category of needing to, you know, see somebody just completely deplatformed and punished for something that might be like an interpersonal intervention based on a, a comment or a mistake that they made in a relationship that we want to continue. So I think there's some taking a breath <laughs> for everybody to, okay, let's let's actually take a breath and see what's going on and where is this fear coming from? And I think the fear also comes from what we talked about before, which is our innate desire to be seen as good people, right? That when we make a mistake and we were called out, that must mean that we are no longer being seen as good people. And therefore we are at risk of being completely destroyed in terms of our humanity, our character and our history of goodness. And I think that's also something that I, I think is a very prevalent fear that I hear from executives who are terrified of saying the wrong thing. And they are wanting me to give them a list of things that they can't say and a list of things that they can say so that at least when they're in public, they don't make that mistake and be canceled. And what I remind people is it's inevitable we're going to make mistakes because we're human and also because this work of social justice is always going to evolve right i think there's such fixation around language because i think it's an easy thing for people to signal with to other people that they are in the know or that they are an ally if they use the right terms and the correct terminology but the terms are going to evolve, right? So even if I give somebody a list of terminology, by next week, it may be outdated based on what is going on in the world. And so what I want people to pay attention to and spend their energy on is the principles of language and the principles of how to be, and also how we can recover from our mistakes. And that as much as we are capable of causing harm, we are also capable of recovering from our mistakes and that we are also capable of learning and taking accountability and repairing the harm that we've caused. I don't think a lot of us give ourselves that reminder and that, that compassion that we need to be able to do this work. Because yes, I've been doing this work since I was in high school and I've made a lot of mistakes and I've also had to learn how to practice accountability over the course of my career, because that is, I think, such a fundamental skill that we all need to have in order to be the people that we say we want to be, right? When we talk about honesty, I think the honesty part really starts with us being honest about who do we want to be in this world? How do we want to live our lives? Who do I actually want to be in this world in relation to the issues that are going on, the equity and justice promises, and what are our values? What are my values? And I think that's the most sustainable why. That's the most sustainable foundation that we need to start from because my job isn't to necessarily change people's mind to do things that they don't want to do, right? I think that's a short-term fix. I don't want to scare people into doing this work. I don't want to force people to do something that they don't want to do. My job is to put the mirror up and to show them, hey, you say this is the person that you want to be. Is that true? Because these are all the things that then we will need to align on in order for you to show up as a person that you want to be. And my job is to simply offer that opportunity for people to reflect and to course correct when they have deviated from their said values and 
apologizing, taking accountability and recovering from mistakes is such an inherent part of people who are committed to the work of justice and equity. And that skill, we can all learn. That's not something that is innate, right? We can all learn how to do that. And we all have the capacity to do that. But we're going to need a lot of commitment and our desire to want to repair harm rather than holding onto the identity of being a good person that's going to come in the way of us being able to receive feedback and to hear the harm that we've caused and to be able to practice accountability for the long run. You do a great job in the book and in general of pulling out of this field of what people can easily cordon off as, oh, this is DEI work. I mean, the end goal is that we don't even have to use that phrase because we recognize that this is about becoming the people in the society that we want to be. So this vision for who you want to be and decoupling the idea that if you aren't always thinking, saying, or doing the good or right thing, then you can't be the person you want to become is really meaningful. So you can decide who you want to be and then recognize that it's a journey. And on the journey, it sounds like what you're saying is when you make mistakes, the accountability is part of the process of becoming the person you want to be. And like you said with your mom, being willing to be called in to where you may think, say, or do something that's harmful, even if you didn't have the intention of it. That's right. And I think when we are in the process of reflecting on our mistakes, and when we are working really hard to understand the harm that we caused, separate from our desire to be a good person, and when we are able to put genuine effort towards repairing the harm that we've caused, then in that process is our becoming the people that we want to be, mm-hmm. right? It's not, it's not that one action that we did that caused harm that's going to define the rest of our identity, but it's the grappling, it's the reflecting, it's the taking accountability, it's the struggle to becoming the person that we say we want to be. I think that's so sacred, that's so important. And I think that's what I mean when I when I say I care about the how as much as the what, right? But people so often want to jump to the place of being forgiven, being understood, and being seen as the good people that they are, that they miss and they skip and rush the entire process. That is the gem of this journey. So Michelle, there's, I mean, with so much going on, I mean, you you wrap your book up on how we move forward together and with so much going on and so many different things that we can all pay attention to, what I notice is the fatigue and the feeling of being bogged down by, I don't know what to pay attention to and what to fight for. When we think about our journey, going back to our why of becoming the people we want to be, how do you recommend we choose a course that we can stay for a long period of time so we aren't distracted and fatigued by every other course we could take. I always like to say, because there is a lot going on all the time, and I think that there is so much overwhelm that we all feel, that I feel, even though I feel like I've been on this journey for a very long time and I'm, I have a why that I come back to over and over again, I think the overwhelm is so real and valid for people to feel. And I think what's helped me time after time is being able to understand that we have so much power to create change in our immediate surrounding. And I think that's a great place for people to start. 
is really understanding what is your sphere of influence, right? If you're an executive, where is the most effective way and the most effective space that you can influence given your own power and privilege and positionality? And go have that be the starting place and have the change ripple out from your own sphere of influence. And I think it's important for people to also focus on one or two issues that they feel really passionate about and to start there because eventually all of our paths are going to intersect, right? When I started my activism journey, it was down the path of working for queer and trans people of color. And really it was with LGBTQ uh, rights. And as I went down that road, I understood that there is so many intersections between what I was fighting for, which were queer and trans rights, with anti-racism work, with feminism work, with disability justice work. So all of these paths will intersect, but start somewhere. Start somewhere you feel passionate about, start somewhere you feel like you want to learn more about, and go deep and narrow first, and then see how that leads to so many other paths. So starting with your sphere of influence and on a topic or a community that you feel closest to, I think is a great place for people to begin this work. I even find just, I mean, just you, the fact that you and I are having a conversation today, you know, I'm a black woman, but I don't do social justice work. I do, the work I do is about combining, like I told you earlier, psychology and spirituality to help people live more meaningful lives. And yet here we are, right? Because it does intersect and we can work together and we can still, you and I, after this conversation, we'll go on our own journeys with a little bit more information and a little bit different of a perspective on how we can bring some of the things in that each other are doing to be able to help change our corner of the world. Yeah, it all intersect uh, eventually because we're talking about human beings. And I think that's what people forget so often, whether people are talking about social justice issues or diversity, equity, and inclusion. Somehow we create these topics or programs or initiatives that are devoid of the actual human lives that are at the center of this work, that are core to this work. So when people talk to, talk to me about DEI best practices, right, diversity best practices, and want to point to you know the pie charts and the graphs and their their diversity data and the metrics i like to remind people that what we're doing is human work and trauma work and it's so important that we don't forget that and whatever issues that we're talking about right when people talk about we don't talk about politics in the workplace which is such a common phrase that we hear there is no political issue that doesn't touch human lives, right? So what is political is personal and therefore professional because our workplaces are made up of human beings. And what we're talking about is always going to be about human lives. So that's, I think, such a core message and through line in my book that I want people to understand and take away that DEI or social justice work, whatever we call it, is at the end of the day about human beings. And that is so important for us to remember. Thank you for saying that. And thank you for thank you for pointing directly to the political conversation that people don't want to have. Politics is humanity. All right, Michelle, so I'm going to have you answer our three big answers. So better humans are 
Better humans are possible. Better work is. Better work is humane work. And a better world has. A better world has compassion. Michelle, thank you so much for being here today. Love just getting to spend some time with you and talk about your book and talk about the human work that you're doing. I want to I think I want to rephrase all of it to just human work and put us all in the same in the same boat because we we really are all doing similar things and the more we separate it, the harder it gets to see the through lines. So I I so appreciate the human work that you're doing. I loved your book and I can't wait for people to read it. No, you will not get canceled. I loved, I loved you sharing more about who you are in all of this. Thank you. You won't be canceled. Thank you. I'll say Leah said I won't be canceled, so. <laughs> so it can happen. Thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure. Absolutely. Truly, it means a lot. Our show is hosted by me, Leah Smart, and is produced by the amazing LinkedIn media production team. Gratitude to Dan Mills, Nicole Roach, Andy Ta, Katya Kostakova, and Lamia Bowden. Dan Lujan is the mastermind behind the scenes. Chris Eldridge did our cover art, and our music is from the ever-growing collection of APM Music. If you like our show, go on Apple Podcasts to subscribe and rate us. And if the spirit moves you, leave a review. It helps our work get out to more people like you who benefit from it. And if you want to stay in touch, subscribe to our newsletter. It's on LinkedIn and it's called In the Arena. And lastly, you can feel free to email me at inthearena at linkedin.com. Thanks for coming on the journey with me and I'll see you next time.